a young perspective on hot-button issues around the world. This is The Hub. Hello and welcome to the program. I'm Wang Guan in Beijing. The G20 summit starts off in Bali, Indonesia, and Chinese diplomacy is in full swing. Chinese President Xi Jinping met U.S. President Joe Biden. A highly anticipated face-to-face will tell you what happened. And on Tuesday morning, President Xi is in dialogue with French President Emmanuel Macron with more bilateral talks in the pipeline for the Chinese president. What are the implications of these meetings? And what can we expect from the G20 summit of the world's major developed and emerging economies? Now, for more about all this, we have Klaus Loris, Distinguished Professor of History and International Affairs at the University of North Carolina. And also we have with us here in Beijing studio, Victor Gao, Chair Professor at Suzhou University, and Einar Tengen, current affairs commentator and senior fellow at Taihe Institute. Gentlemen, welcome to the program. So much to digest from this all-important meeting. Uh, the first uh, face-to-face summit since they became national leaders, heads of state. But first of all, I want you to listen to what the two leaders actually said during the summit. The world expects that China and the U.S. would properly handle their relationship. Our meeting today has attracted the world's highest attention. We should work with all countries to bring more hope to world peace, greater confidence in global stability, and stronger impetus to common development. As always, I am ready to have a candid and in-depth exchange of views with you on issues of strategic importance in China-U.S. relations, global and regional issues. I also look forward to working with you to bring U.S.-China relations back to the track of healthy and stable growth to the benefit of our two countries and the world as a whole. We share responsibility, in my view, to show that China and the United States can manage our differences, prevent competition from becoming anything ever near conflict, and to find ways to work together on urgent global issues that require our mutual cooperation. So, President Xi, I look forward to our continuing and ongoing open and honest dialogue we've always had, and I thank you for the opportunity. Uh, Victor, let me start with you. It seems that the two sides agree to set up a new framework to develop principles to manage their conflicts, competition, however you call it. Are there cause for uh, optimism, at least in the short run, before long-term structural issues kick in? Absolutely. I think history will mark uh, yesterday's summit as the beginning of a long process of normalizing relations between China and the United States, uh, mainly because the two heads of state of China and the United States managed to build a floor to the bilateral relations and also established a guardrail for the control of the bilateral relations, preventing it from really spilling out of control, uh, which may cause huge damage to both China and the United States. Now, it doesn't mean that whatever that's going to happen will be easy, it will be full of challenges, but I think the two countries need to use all the wisdom, courage, uh, vision, and resourcefulness to build upon the summit meeting yeah, but of Victor, yesterday. Victor, I mean, the, the proof is going to be in the actions. 
And quite frankly, I mean, the actions of the U.S. has not measured up to the words. I mean, they keep saying, one, we believe in a one-China policy. Uh, they keep talking about, uh, you know, not trying to contain China. But at the same time, you have the, all the stuff going on with uh, cutting off the China from chips, uh, sailing ships up yeah. and down the Taiwan Straits. So I, I'm a little different. I want to see what actually happens, if there's going to be uh, some actions. Remember, um, this meeting was set up before Nancy Pelosi was going to Taiwan. And it, it almost derailed it because they stopped talking to each other. Now they're just saying, okay, we're going to continue to talk to each other, try to get things back on track. But those are words. Let's see the actions. Of course, uh, we, we've seen this before, the double dealing on the question of Taiwan on the part of Washington. Actually, the design of strategic ambiguity itself, uh, as Victor very well knew this as a former translator of late Chinese leader Deng Xiaoping, uh, was to use Taiwan as an unsinkable aircraft carrier in the um, Western Pacific but, Victor, um, the two leaders have delegated their working-level teams to follow up on their consensus reached. And uh, is this cause for optimism? This is very important, mainly because, as uh, Anna just now mentioned, in the immediate aftermath of Nancy Pelosi's illicit visit to Taiwan, China kind of uh, terminated eight channels of communication with their counterparts in the United States. This was a cause of concern, and I think the President Xi Jinping and President Biden more or less agreed to the resumption of uh, channels of communication, not only at the foreign minister to the Secretary of State level, but I suppose it will open up all the channels at all other levels of uh, communication between China and the United States. This will be very, very important. And Anthony Blinken mm. is visiting Beijing, and Beijing actually yeah. said it would welcome a visit by Anthony Blinken shortly after the Bali summit. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's there, obviously, to follow up on something. But, you know, once again, you know, there's, there's what you say and what you do, and it's going to be real questions. I agree. Are they going to go forward with the legislation, which is basically going to undo the three communiques in Congress? Uh, that's kind of uh, sunk under the radar right now, but will that be revived? What's going to happen in the House? I mean, everyone keeps saying that, um, you know, Biden did better, but the fact is, it looks almost certain that he's going to lose the House of the Republicans, mm. and he's going to be dealing indirectly with Donald Trump because Donald Trump controls about 40 members. And he's going to, uh, you know, whoever is the Speaker of the House, uh, McCarthy looks like the one, he will have to deal with Trump or cross the aisle and start dealing with Democrats. Very, very difficult yeah, Trump situation. Trump is still uh, pretty much alive, and Trump may announce his uh, 2024 run anytime this week. Professor Loris, we've heard from our two guests. Uh, they differ slightly on what have come out of this summit, or rather what will be the long-term implications for China-U.S. relations. What is your reading on the summit in Indonesia? I think that the summit has taken place as a good thing indeed. It's kind of a reset policy in Chinese-American relations. We had very, very tense relations. People were even talking about war, about conflict, about imminent invasion of Taiwan. All that has been put at bay by that meeting. So I think there is reason for being slightly optimistic. Of course, it is true that the rhetoric now needs to be proven by action, but on both sides. Of course, the United States needs to deliver, but China also needs to deliver. There are serious uh, problems in the relationship which need to be overcome. It is good that uh, Secretary of State Blinken will soon go to uh, China to talk to his colleague and other Chinese uh, leaders to really approach some um, uh, issues concretely. Let's talk about China-US engagement, if you will, and whether or not 
This bilateral summit will reset uh, Washington's relations with Beijing. Whether or not there will be reconciliation, it's still much, uh, very much a question. Well, I would say, while I listened very carefully to the American uh, panelist and to what uh, Aina had said, I think philosophically we need to have the confidence that war is not an option between China and the United States. That's number one. Number two is that short of a war, what can you do to solve all the differences? China will always be different from the United States. And no one can make China exactly a replica of the United States, and the United States will not be a replica of China. Therefore, there is only one way to deal with the differences between China and the United States. That's to get along with each other, mm -hmm. to understand each other. Whatever differences there are, let's do negotiation, diplomacy, etc. Rather than you know, lose your sanity, get to each other's jugular, for example, or try to wrestle you to the ground as if there will be no consequences. Yep. I think President Biden and mm -hmm. President Xi Jinping more or less set the tone that there is a constructive way to deal with the differences between China and the United States. We need to really focus on the positive side and then do our best to make sure that China-U.S. relations do not fall apart. Well, that's fine, but you know, you you, you heard uh, President Biden uh, giving the same talk points uh, that we were just uh, debating uh, before, uh, talking about domestic matters within China. The issue is American exceptionalism, this idea that the U.S. has to be in control of the world in order to put an imprint of one kind of society, one kind of economics, one kind of politics, one kind of ideology. And it's just, it's never worked in history, and there's no reason to believe it's going to work now. So I, I really bristle at this idea that you're going to achieve peace by saying, I do not accept who you are. Uh, I agree with you, Victor. In a perfect world, both sides would just say, look, uh, you're different, we're different, let's see where we can agree. But that's not what we're seeing, and that's why I'm concerned about what actions are going to follow. I do have one area of hope, though, and that's Janet Yellen has uh, seemed to take in predominance. She is everywhere all of a sudden for you know, somebody who's at Treasury, unusual to be condimenting on international affairs, this might signal uh, that uh, Catherine Tai and the people who were in favor of keeping the, the economic sanctions on China, that they may be in the descendants in her view that to get rid of these would be uh, more positive. Uh, Professor Lawrence, let me ask you, since you're an expert in international affairs, um, the two leaders have agreed on a whole host of issues, climate, um, people-to-people -people exchange, public health cooperation, and they delegated their teams to follow up on the, these consensus. Um, but do you think eventually uh, political tensions and security rivalry between the two will once again derail these um, what many call low-hanging fruits? I mean, this happened, right? Think about Nancy Pelosi's very controversial visit to Taiwan. Uh, absolutely, uh, but Biden has repeatedly said he, that he wants to maintain the status quo on Taiwan. You know, the one China policy is of course accepted by the United States and there is fear that uh, Taiwan may be taken over violent by uh, China and that is what is the issue. If the status quo is being continued, which has held very well since the 1980s, I think this would fully uh, find the approval of President Biden and other Western leaders. So there is possibility 
is to make progress by improving on the status quo, maintaining the status quo. Uh, there are other issues where, of course, both leaders, both countries can work together. For example, climate change, for example, sustainability in the developing world. There are many, many issues which can be tackled. And of course, there is the elephant in the room in the G20 meeting, that is the Ukraine war and Russia's role in that. And here, of course, Biden's hope would have been that President Xi can influence President Putin to perhaps withdraw his troops from uh, Ukraine, perhaps uh, make sure that the war comes to an end. He certainly will have impressed on uh, President Xi, and I know President Xi agreed with that, that the use of nuclear weapons or even the threat of, nu of the use of nuclear weapons in the Ukraine war yeah. is totally unacceptable. And in, uh, on this issue, both leaders have uh, easily agreed, and you would have expected that. So there is uh, a lot of cooperation possible between the two leaders, that not everything will fall immediately into place and that not everything people agree upon, including human rights, including technology and semiconductor issues. This is pretty obvious and that needs to be tackled, of course. But uh, I think it was a good beginning that the two leaders met at the G20. They, uh, it was a reset of US-Chinese relations and it can only get better, I hope. Victor, let's talk about Chinese diplomacy. It's not just about uh, Xi-Biden summit. Uh, President Xi is meeting with uh, the French President Emmanuel Macron, and uh, Macron has some very positive statements so far. Uh, he said Chinese path to modernization is much admired by the French. He opposes Cold War-style power politics, you know, camps dividing the world, and uh, he talked about strategic autonomy of France. What exactly does that mean for the future of China-France relations? Well, first of all, I think uh, France is a very important country as far as China is concerned. We are both permanent member states of the United Nations Security Council. Both China and France uh, are in possession of uh, nuclear weapons. And uh, uh, traditional friendship between France and China date back to many, many decades ago, if not even a couple of centuries ago. Therefore, I think immediately after Chancellor Short's visit to China, this round of meeting between Chinese president and French president in Bali uh, will be very, very important because I don't think the French business community want to be left out of the, all the fun and excitement in the China market. And they really want to seize the moment to not only develop the business relations, but also people-to-people -people relations. Yesterday, I attended a Francophone meeting involving all the French-speaking countries in the world, for example, and we talked about how China and the French-speaking countries can really beef up their exchanges and understanding, for example, and this will be very important, especially in the digital economy, because the French language itself is relatively speaking now smaller than the English-speaking language and smaller than the Chinese language community. So how to make sure that the French language itself and the data generated in the French language will also be a very much important part of the digital economy to come? Yeah, speaking of which, uh, Allianz Francais, a major French language and cultural institution, is just, what, uh, five blocks away from us and right downstairs where you live, <laughs> right yeah. Um Talking about strategic autonomy, how much strategic autonomy do you think there will be uh, in reality? How much would um, France deviate from NATO, from Washington's uh, China policy or China posture? 
Well, I, I think there's, there, there are some um, cracks. If you look, look at EU, it's divided north, south, east, and west. There's more disunity than unity. Uh, but there's also this growing real, realization that what happened with the Ukraine war has, in essence, made uh, Europe, at least for the next few years, a place where you cannot manufacture competitively. Uh, you're seeing this in Germany. They, just, they don't even know if they'll have. Even if they paid for it, they won't know if they can get the energy that they need because, obviously, they're going to prioritize human life over factories. So you're seeing an exodus of larger companies who can, finding other markets where they can produce because it's their lifeblood. If they don't have them, I mean, you know, saying that, yeah, we have to fire people in Germany, yes, and France, yes, understood. Now, Germany and France are not the same in relation to China. Germany has a much bigger economic footprint here in terms of exports uh, than France does, but France is in this market and it is very vital. The big issue, though, that I, that I have with this is that you hear these leaders talking about what China should do. Uh, China should do this. You should solve Ukraine. You should solve DPRK. At the same time, they're very critical of China. But there's no message like what she was saying. It says, how do we form institutions, entities that can create some sort of agreement? How do we come to those agreements? It always seems to be this kind of post-colonial idea that you know, we'll, we should lecture you and you, you should just measure up to what we think the standards are. This is not going to work in a world which is increasingly divided between the global developed totally north and the uh, developing south. Uh, Professor Loris, um, I'll give you a chance to jump in. What do you think? This is kind of unfair. Of course, there is no post-colonial attitude to China. This is a huge exaggeration. And I know Ima keeps uh, talking about that, but it's still wrong. You know, uh, Xi Jinping has an enormous influence on Putin. He is perhaps the only person in the world who has quite a strong influence on Putin. That the world then expects Xi to use that influence so that the war in Ukraine, for example, can be ended. Victor, do you agree? I mean, uh, China has huge influence over the Russia's foreign policy. I think as far as the war in Ukraine is concerned, China has been pursuing the right objective from the very beginning. That is to solve whatever problems in Russia-Ukraine relations through peaceful dialogue. And I think China has been doing this from the very beginning, urging Russia as well as uh, Ukraine to solve the problems through diplomacy. And I think this is also the message that President Xi Jinping told President Biden in Bali. And I think history will prove that only through negotiation can you solve the war in Ukraine. So I think China is on the right side of history and time will really bear out that President Xi Jinping and China stand on the right path to solve the war in Ukraine. Okay, I, I'm just going to say that it's ridiculous. I mean, <laughs> Xi Jinping and Biden have a good relationship, but that doesn't stop them from doing pursuing their national interests. I mean, this idea that some, uh, you know, that it only takes one to tango, that it was just an unprovoked attack by Russia on Ukraine, and that, you know, Europe and, uh, and the U.S. were simply amazed by this. Nonsense. They're pushing NATO in. Every uh, Kissinger to Keenan, uh, all the Cold War warriors said, if you go into Ukraine, you will, not might, you will have a conflict, armed conflict with Russia. So this idea that somehow China is supposed to come and save Europe from its, its nonsense is unbelievable. Our Professor Loris, um, G20 has a very lofty logo, recover together, yes, recover stronger. Um, I want to shift gears a little bit. I mean, after all, we're talking about G20. What do you think about this logo? I mean, do you think countries, large ones, small ones, industrialized ones, emerging economies, 
they can recover together and recover stronger? We would hope so. I mean, there are serious problems in the developing world. The debt crisis needs to be resolved. Financial stability needs to be uh, recreated. There is an infrastructure problem. There's inflation problems. There's, uh, of course, there's a severe food crisis, a severe health crisis, and all of that has become worse because of the Ukraine war and Putin's aggressive action. Whatever was just said, you know, it, Russia went into Ukraine despite all the grievances which Putin may rightly have to some extent. But do you think G20 you know, will become another platform of right great power politics a foreign country? Think about the, all the challenges that we have, the economic recovery, financial coordination and COVID. Yes, of course, countries need to cooperate, and China and the United States are part of this, clearly, to resolve the issue. But I believe that China has an important role to play, as does the United States. And by cooperating with each other, as we have seen the beginning, perhaps, at the G20, there is more hope that the Ukraine war and other global issues, like the food crisis, like the debt crisis in the developing world, can be resolved, clearly. But both sides need to become active to do so. Right, Victor, what is the prospects of recover together from this G20 summit? Well, first of all, the world needs to recover, that's for sure. All parts of the world need to recover. And then, if, for example, developed countries recover without the recovery of a developing and emerging market, that recovery will not be sustainable. So I think recover together is actually not only the right topic for G20 in Bali, but also it points out to the right path of recovery for the whole world because now the world is in a crisis mode and if the crisis upon crisis are not handled properly, it will explode with devastating consequences for all the countries involved. Therefore, recover and recover together, recover to become stronger, for example, this is truly the right path for the world. I mean, this is also China's message to the world, right, Einer? Uh, if you look at China's track record, I mean, there's so much uh, naysayers and skeptics about what China is all about. But China is a de facto global leader for development. China is a global de facto leader for peace, if you think about this track record. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean, China is being criticized for doing something about a problem everyone acknowledges. I mean, there's $4 trillion deficit in terms of infrastructure that affects the global south and the central Asia. And China has been trying to correct that as part of an entire system that works for all the countries involved. And now they're being attacked by countries who wouldn't do that. And you know, they acknowledge that there's a problem there, but they say, you shouldn't take money from China. We're not gonna give you money, but you shouldn't take it from China. I mean, it's putting countries in a difficult position, asking them to choose continual pressure uh, whether it's in regards to chips from the European side, I mean, the U.S. is saying to Dutch uh, to, uh, yeah. manufacturers, don't sell machines to the Chinese. Where does it stop? Why is Washington making policy for the rest of the world? And, and the rationale is uh, to prevent the Chinese military from using high-end yeah. chips. But the fact is, we all know about the dual-use nature of chips, right? It's in our phones, it's in the LED bulbs, it's in the rice cookers. U.S. does it too. I mean, they're using their, their chips for military purposes. This idea that they're cutting off and this is going to make a more peaceful world is, is, is nonsense. But there's a deep dysfunctionality that is, has been exposed by this G20. This was supposed to be about digital economy, about the pandemic, 
about economics, food shortages, all the things that we discussed and uh, Professor Loris uh, indicated are important things. But instead, it's become a litmus test on whether the two largest powers can get along. Notice there's a very sharp difference. Biden always talked about the negative issues, what China has to do. You know, she said, look, let's be adult about this. Let's live up to the expectations of the rest of the world. Let's address their issues. We have a responsibility to big nations to do that. So you have a very sharp difference in approach, tone, and also substance. Victor, what do you think? Well, indeed, there are tough issues, difficulties between China and the United States. But I, I, I'm always an optimist. I always believe that so long as China stands firm on matters of principle, and the United States sooner or later will realize that they need to get along with China. And no other way will work as far as China is concerned. War does not work. Confrontation does not work. Rivalry or conflict do not work. The only way that will work is to get along between China and the United States. And I truly believe this is the main message of the Bali summit between President Biden and President Xi Jinping. Uh, but there, there, the problem with your approach, Victor, is that uh, the United States is a Jekyll and Hyde. You know, at one at one point you're going to have a change in administration, and as we have seen in the past, actually, I'm very curious about the midterm elections. Uh, Joe Biden's yeah. party um, retained uh, the Senate, and uh, probably he's going to lose the House. We don't know yet. It's within slim margins, but it looks like he's having a strengthened hand coming out of U.S. Oh, midterm elections. Uh, at least that is how he portrays it. He's Do you a politician. Think <laughs> when dust settles, um, you know, in U.S. domestic politics, the priorities can be once again on foreign policy, and the chief among them. America's China policy. Well, the only the only thing they have in common, as Victor knows, and we discussed, is that both Democrats and Republicans don't like China. Uh, but this idea, he won't have the House. That means he cannot do any appropriation bills. He cannot fund anything. And I don't think that Republicans are going to be lining up to help him in his uh, particular initiatives, especially with a presidential election looming two years hence. So you're going to have a dysfunctional uh, Washington. You've been there. You know the situation. There's no way they're going to cooperate. Gentlemen, so much ground has been covered. We learned a lot. Uh, Victor, thank you. Einer, thank you. And Professor Loris from Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Thank you, as always, and that will do it for this edition of The Hub on CGTN. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm Mengguan in Beijing. I'll see you again soon.